do you agree that, you know, it's time that we all wake up and take responsibility, even for our ancestors that did not know any better? been waiting patiently to have this kind of conversation. (laughs) Hey, it's Wake Up With KC, and today I have a special guest that uh, I, I read about him, and his transformational story is very touching. And amazingly, at the age of eight, he knew what he wanted to do, what he, what his passion was, what he felt he was destined to do. And then life happened and he experienced a a horrific um, experience and trauma. And it made him realize, you know, what was his true desire and how he transformed his life. So please welcome Mark Scheffler. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here with you. And you have a very interesting story. And you discovered your passion when you were eight years of age. And can you just share with everybody your journey and what happened and what you came to discover and how you transformed your life? Sure. Um, when when I was, it, it's actually, I have to make a correction. It was a typo. It was that, that what you're talking about that happened at eight. I knew at eight what I wanted to do. I wanted to go into the entertainment business. I wanted to go into comedy. I uh, I had a thing for stand-up comedians, and that, you know, would, something I used to watch every Sunday night on the Ed Sullivan Show uh, and wherever I could. And I always had this thing where I, I would imagine myself uh, doing what they're doing, you know, and, and being there and standing on a stage in front of a microphone, talking to people and making them laugh. And I was, I had, I had developed an, an ability to make my family laugh and the people around me and my friends. And uh, so when I was 10 years old, not eight, it was 10. It's a, a typo that I, I've just forgotten to correct. Uh, my, uh, my father asked me, I lived in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania at the time as a kid. My father asked me what I wanted for my 10th birthday, and I just blurted out the Three Stooges, and he got them for me. Uh, he he uh, hired them to perform at a birthday party at a, a nightclub. They were doing a two-week gig at a, a club that used to be in uh, outside of Pittsburgh in Monroeville called the Holiday House. And uh, he called them up, said, look, my son wants to have you guys perform. This is what I can pay you. You like it? Fine. Uh, and so they said, yeah. Um, and I had about 60 friend, uh, friends and family, you know, kids with their parents. Because, you know, once they heard the Three Stooges with their parents were coming. And during the show, uh, uh, Mo uh, announces, he said, we're all here to celebrate Mark's birthday. Where is Mark? So I raised my hand and he said, Mark, come on stage with us. And... I, you know, I got like a spirit boner, right? Like I got like, ooh. <laughs> so I jumped up on stage with them. I knew all their material and I interacted with the Three Stooges so effortlessly that Mo, at one point, Mo put his hand on my head and, and said, I dub you the fourth Stooge. And 
I could hear people laughing, right? Because when, you, when you're on stage, you have lights in your eyes, right? So you, don't, you can only see basically the first two or three rows and you're, you're just playing to them, hoping everybody else picks it up. So I could hear the laughter and what it felt like to me was this comforter, this blanket that was wrapping me up, right? And I said, yeah, this is it. <laughs> I want more of this. How do I get this? Where, where do I find this? So, you know, that's how it started. And I guess what you're talking about when you say the transformation, I had a very nice career as a TV writer and a producer. And I, but I started at the comedy store. I'm a member of uh, that class of 77 that included Robin Williams and Jay Leno and David Letterman and Tom Dreesen, and Mark Summers uh, and Mike Keaton. And, you know, just a bunch of people. And we all kind of started within weeks of each other uh, in back in 1976. And I stopped doing stand up because uh, I got a lot of writing jobs and I, I had to make a decision. You know, I, I couldn't stay out till four o'clock in the morning or three, four in the morning uh, running around from club to club and then be, you know, bright and chipper at 930 in the morning in an office. So I gave stand-up up and I had kids and my kids grew up and I got divorced and remarried. And um, I, in November of 2015, I got hit by a car in my neighborhood in Toluca Lake, uh, suburb of, I mean, it's LA, but it's like in the, right next to Burbank where the studios are. And I got really slammed up. I mean, broken bones everywhere and just, you know, very fucked up, like, you know, like, like close to roadkill. So I took, you know, got better. And what happened was during my recovery process, every time I was medicated, what really took the pain away was me time tripping back to 1977, 78 and 79, 80, 81, till I had to stop doing standup. When every night, I was hanging out with Robin and Letterman and Jay and we at the comedy store and then the improv. And this was my life. You know, this was, you know, I mean, I had people who just relatives who would come and out to hang out with me just to experience that thing. My dad used to come out and hang out with everybody. So I said, well, maybe I'll go back to doing stand up, Right. And, and I went to the comedy store a few times, not not working, just watching and listening because you know I like to listen to what audiences are responding to. And uh, I came back kind of depressed because everybody was young and nobody had a beard, you know, like this. And everybody, you know, it was a, and I accepted the fact that it's a different generation, you know, and I wasn't trying to recreate something because I couldn't let go of it. Uh, my name is on the wall of the comedy store and on the outside has been there for 40 some years. And, you know, that, that it's, I'm part of that process, that, that, that event. Um, but I still want to, you know, I still to, to, to keep myself content creatively and to keep myself relevant intellectually in my head. I, I like making people laugh. So I gave it up, you know, I, I just gave it up. And then, one day, you know, after the accident, I was taking a shower and I was thinking about it while I was showering and I got really pissed off at myself. You know, I have these moments. I'm one of these people, like I actually have conversations with myself in the mirror. I'll talk you to myself. 
I'll, t- I'll talk to myself and, you know, hash things out, right? So, right. so, you know, because not only am I the best person to express what I'm feeling, I'm also a very good listener for myself when I see an image, right? So, and I, and I don't blow smoke up my own ass. That's the, that's the key thing. I, I often make decisions that are not my, uh, not, you know, what I would do if I, if I wasn't looking at things objectively. So I got out of the shower and I looked at myself and uh, my beard was all like about this length and it was all drippy wet and my hair was a little longer and it was, you know, I just looked, I looked like a vagrant, you know, I looked just horrible. And I said, no one gives a shit. The reason why you're not going up on stage is because no one gives a shit. You had your day, you had your fun, leave it for somebody else. Who cares? Yada, yada, yada. And I, I just was really like really brutal on myself. And then I don't, I don't know how, I'm not a religious person, but I could say that in this moment, I had an epiphany, right? Uh, something, something that I wasn't thinking about at all, connected to what I was thinking about, just dropped into my head. And I looked at myself and I, I had the idea and I said, don't go away. Now they'll listen to you. So I ran into my closet and I put on a black suit, a white shirt and a black tie. And I have a, like a hat collection, like 200 and some hats. So um, I put on a black fedora. I walked back into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror. I said, now they'll listen. Because I, in that instant, created a character that was a combination of my maternal grandfather and the rabbi of the synagogue, the Orthodox synagogue that we belong to. So I put these two characters together and my wife is a Colombian woman and uh, uh, we speak Spanish to each other uh, quite a bit, especially like her mother's visiting us now. So we speak a lot of Spanish. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I just ad-libbed Eliud, which means the Jew in Spanish. And that's what I call my character. And I've been doing it minus the you know, pandemic bullshit. I've been doing it uh, about three years and uh, it, it's, it's been an amazing, you know, not to sound like two sixties, but it has been an amazing transformation because it, it gives me a purpose to write. I wrote the character for six months. I, I, I took the character and I wrote him for six months before I ever stepped foot on a stage because I needed to know that it was like a real thing, like like this was a character that could sustain real material as opposed to just being like somebody, a sketch, something in a sketch. So I wrote it for six months and then I put a 15 minute set together, went to a friend of mine, a comedian, young millennial comedian friend of mine, ran an open mic in uh, Tarzana. And I said, I, can you give me 15 minutes? He said, yeah, sure. So uh, I did, went on stage as that character for the first time, did the 15 minute, and it all worked. It just worked. And then I, I did it more and more and more. And then in 2019, I, was, I took my wife to New York for uh, two weeks uh, during the holidays for a vacation. And um, my publicist got me a spot at the cutting room in New York, uh, which is owned by uh, actor Chris Noth and Steve, a, friend, a guy named Steve Wax. And uh, 
he told my publicist, ah, you know, when, when he first saw me on the promo material, he said, yeah, I'll book this guy. So they booked me on a Saturday night, uh, December 22nd in 2019, I think. And, and um, I invited a comedian friend of mine, an Orthodox Jewish comedian friend of mine, not, not in the garb, but he, he dresses secularly, but he's Orthodox Jewish. And we're friends like for 40 years, Richie Gold. And um, he's from the Bronx, he talks like this. Hey, hey, how you doing, man? Everything okay? Yeah, everything's good here. So uh, I said, you gotta come and watch this and tell me the truth. Just, just tell me the truth. So comes to the show. He watches the show and we're walking back up Madison Avenue afterwards. He says, hey man, I gotta tell you something. If I didn't know you, if I didn't fucking know you, I'd buy it hook, line and sinker. Like you got it down. So that was the night I did. It was like 150 people, New York, New Yorkers, some tourists, the holidays. It was like one of those moments where I said, well, this is either gonna sink or swim because this is a real audience. This, it's not me and 140 comedians waiting to get up on stage. This is a real audience. And it worked. I did about 17 minutes, got some applause, got a lot of laughs. And I, I realized, yeah, it was more than like shits and giggles, right? It was more than something that, that, that was just kind of like masturbatory for me. Like, oh, you're just doing this for yourself. It was like a real thing. It became real that night. So that's what I'm doing. I, do, I, I haven't done a show since, since the COVID pandemic. But I'm doing my first show with my friend Steve Middleman, a comedian uh, from New York, uh, who's my sort of my neighbor out here, and we're old friends. We're doing a show together with some other people uh, at the Encore Theater in Tustin uh, on October 9th, Saturday, October 9th. First show back. So, wow. you know, wow. in, in between all that, tons of shit, right? I'm writing a book about my life that I, I call uh, uh, As Luck Would Have It. Uh, the story of me and my very successful, mediocre career. So wow, that's it. Wow. That's uh, <laughs> it's like a really short, short, short version of the last uh, 40 some years of my life. Well, when you're, uh, when you're a kid, you look at life in a different way. Agree? Oh, absolutely. You look at it when you're a kid. Everything is in the immediate. Everything is in the now. Because, you know, you're, you're, you don't have much history, right, with yourself. You're, you're compared to adults. So everything is in the now. Where am I going now? Are we there yet? Why do I have to do this now? Why can't I? You know, you're always in the now. And you don't, you don't have the, the luxury of perspective, right, that time gives you. Uh, so, yeah, to answer your question. <laughs> I talk too much. I talk way too no, fucking no, much. No, 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 that's awesome. Awesome. No, I, the reason I talk so much is I'm my own favorite subject. So, you know, it's, I just, somebody, it's like lighting a fuse. You, you got to step on it to get it to stop. Well, I heard this, I saw this saying, I think it was on Instagram. And it's like, do not be alarmed. If you see me talking to myself, I'm just getting expert advice. Yeah. Yeah. My wife, my wife and I have been together for 17 years now. My, my, this, this, my second wife. And um, she grew up in Columbia. She's really smart and been here since, I think, 1994. Uh, American, now American citizens for a long time. 
she'd never dated anyone like me. So she, she didn't, it took her a while to get used to the fact that she was with someone. And even though it seemed like it was just the two of them, this other person had a whole lot of other voices in his head talking to him, you know, <laughs> writing jokes and telling him funny things and saying, the, so yeah, that's, it's hard to get used to it. It's not easy to live with. Well, it's, it's, you're using your imagination and you, like you said earlier, you were, you reinvented yourself and it was a part of your transformation. And especially during this pandemic, I think, you know, this was the opportunity for everybody to pause and reinvent themselves. Well, it was certainly an opportunity for self-reflection, that's for sure. You know, for people to take a look at their lives and say, you know, is this working out? Am I, am I like, there are things I could do to make it better for myself. My, why am I making these mistakes all over again? You know? Well, you know, I, I always talk about, you know, the limited beliefs, the mental programmings, even emotional energetic traumas that keep us prisoners in, in our reality. We're the creators of our own reality from the choices we make, the decisions, what we think about, how we feel, and the things that we do. And if you don't like the experience, then you have the power and control to change it. One, one th yeah, you're right. One thing I've learned for sure about what, what we've been going through, it, it's brought on the age of uh, what I call Darwin 2.0. Right? Darwin 2.0. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, Darwin was survival of the fittest, right? Well, Darwin 2.0 is survival of the smartest. And there's a clear divide between, between, and you don't even have to be that smart to be on the right side of this uh, 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 phenomenon here. But you, you, if you're dumb, you'll probably just fade away. And if you're smart, you'll go on. And I, I really believe that. I believe that we are at, this, this is an inflection point that, that I refer to as Darwin 2.0, you know, because used to be you had to be physically fit and have some kind of physical prowess to keep yourself going. Well, you don't need that anymore. You haven't needed that for a long time. Smart people tell cumbersome people what to do all the time, you know, and that's just the way of the world. You know, it, it, it's just, that's, that's a dynamic of the world. It's the aware, smart people who move forward, and it's the other people who get passed by and get angry about it, but they don't realize that they had the power of choice and they choose to be a certain way. Yeah, and it's and it's part of our upbringing, you know, from our parents, from religion, from society, and it, it's a it's been going on for centuries. Yeah, I think it's uh, cannabis, by the way. Um, I think that having raised three children, now see them as adults. I think that more concentration on parenting, on positive parenting needs to be done because parents have the most influence on children but if you look at children, again, in perspective, right, big picture, yeah, they're children, but they are the future of society. They're, they're what's next. So if you put a lot of good into them and they match that with their own, whatever they have, 
then you start creating good people and good people create good good societies you know um happy people don't get angry right they just don't like i i i don't do anything all day except write jokes i sit here and just write jokes my wife yells at me she, you know why are you doing this when i want you here and i say well i gotta write this joke down hang on so you know it's it's creating happy smart people and that's a parenting thing yes and you know growing up and being in abusive and toxic relationships sure it's and then your kids see that it is a challenge it is a struggle you know, you know ed it's like i had to figure out okay and honestly mark i got to the point where it's like is this all there is to life because if, if this is it take me out i don't want to be here yeah there, there are a lot of people who get that's a that's a common dark place for a lot of people but yeah. i'm like if there is something better than this then it was like you were having that moment in the shower kind yeah. of thing yeah. that's what i was doing but i was like if, if the gra grass is greener on the other side from where i'm standing show me show me the fuck what's going on if there is more to life than what i've been dealt with then show me where did you go? i don't want to be here i was like very adamant and at a, like the end of my rope where did you grow up i grew up in florida <laughs> i'm a floridian okay <laughs> But I, I was bullied. I, I've been through, you know, two marriages that were very toxic and abusive. And I had kids and I'm like, look, I didn't get a manual how to be a wife or how to be a mom. You know, I watched what my mom did and, you know, between yeah. their relationship and, you know, their money relationship and all that. I learned a lot. See, but I, I didn't remember it until I got to my adulthood. I, my parents were divorced when I was five. And um, when I was eight, I went to live with my father. And I was, I, I was either the first or one of the first uh, children of, of a divorce who was awarded custody to a male parent. Remember, this is like back in 1957. Okay, so wasn't a lot of male, male parents getting custody of their children. So I had a rocky relationship with my mother who I reconciled with a few years before she passed away, but spent the majority of my life having nothing to do with her because she was toxic and I knew it. And, and there were, you know, and there were things where I said to, I used to say to myself, if I ever have kids, I'm never doing this. I'm never going to do this. My kids will never feel about me the way I once felt, I don't anymore, but the way I once felt about my mother. And, and you know, um, they sent me this, because I wasn't getting along with my mother. I was sent to psychiatrists, and I, I was at a psychiatrist in Pittsburgh when I was like, I don't know, 12 years old, like right before my bar mitzvah. And uh, the doctor said, uh, well, you know why you're here, right? And I said, uh, yeah. He said, well, why do you think you're here? I said, uh, well, I'm here because I don't get along with my mother and certain people in my family think that's abnormal. And the doctor said to me, 
Um, you don't think it's abnormal? I said, generally speaking, yes. But in this situation, no, it's perfectly normal. If I wasn't like the way I am now with her, uh, uh, there'd be something wrong with me. And he said, well, why, what do you mean? I said, well, let me give you an example. I said, well, my mother goes to work in the morning. We're all sitting at the table. My younger sister and I are getting ready for school. And uh, um, um, the housekeeper is there. And my mother is getting ready. She's got this job in a lab doing something. I don't know what she does. Uh, and as she's leaving, she says to this uh, African-American housekeeper, who looked like Mike Tyson with breasts, right? He, she, she, she said, if he opens his mouth to you, smack him. Uh, if he doesn't do what you say, smack him. If he mouths off to his little sister, smack him. And this woman, Mrs. King, would look at my mother and say, so Mrs. Levine, what you're saying is, uh, uh, you want me to smack him. And my mother said, anytime you want. So. I'd watch this and, you know, I'm like 12 years old or something. I, you know, how much, how bad can you really, you know, in that time of, of evolution, you know, nobody was buying guns or doing weird shit. How bad could you be at like 12 years old? And at least I had, some, I had perspective about it because I had a very close relationship with my father and uh, um, he, you know, he balanced it off. He was that guy who would hire the three stooges. So, he, that wasn't an isolated uh, uh, behavioral trait of, him, of, of his. He was a, an aluminum siding salesman who was flamboyant by nature. So, um, you know, he came out of the army after World War II and had a nightclub with his uncle and he knew a lot of comedians. So he was, he was like the different than most fathers would have been who would have said to you, to a child who expressed a, a desire to do this, you know, where they say, well, you have to go to college and you'll have to, you know, and then maybe we can talk about it. No, he would say, yeah, great, man. This would be great. Yeah, I can hook you up. I know some people. So, you know, so it got balanced off. That's why I'm not psychotic, right? That's why I didn't turn out really. I just constantly being a child, right? So what did the psychiatrist tell you well, when you... Yeah, the psychiatrist looked at me and he <clears throat> said, well, you certainly have a point there. She said, your mother really does that? I said, look, that I'm not making this up. This is what she would do. She just didn't like me. And she didn't like me because I had a good relationship with my father. And I, I came to I came to understand her more, you know, uh, a, a, in later years. Like I what happened was um, we hadn't talked in like 25 years. She 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 acted when my first daughter when my daughter was born, my mother just did some horrible, just petty shit, right? You know? Uh, uh, so I, I said, enough is enough. I said, I have a child now and I can't have this toxicity in my life. It's just not going to happen. I have to take control of this. This is what, you know, it's sad, but that's what it is. I can't have this toxic nonsense going on. So um, then like 25 years later, uh, I got a call from my sister who said, uh, your mother's in the hospital. And I said, really, what happened? And she said, well, she fell 
And I'm going, I, my sister also didn't talk to her. They had a, they had a falling out because my mother visited her toxic shit on uh, my sister and her then husband. Um, I'm going to go visit her, she said. You want to go, you want to meet me there? I said, no, I don't actually. So, you know, wish her well for me. Tell her we spoke, you and I spoke, and that I wish her a speedy recovery. So, few days later, I get a call from my sister and she said, uh, she wants your phone number. She wants to, she wants to talk to you. I said, I don't know. My sister said, look, she's, you know, she was 82 at the time. I think this happened 82, 83 said, uh, she doesn't have much longer. Not that this is going to do it, but she's 83 years old. Uh, so I thought about it. I talked to my wife and, uh, I said, okay. So I called her at the hospital and spoken with her in 25 years. And she answered and I said, mother. And she said, Mark, it's you, you actually called. And I said, well, I generally do the things I say. The other thing I learned not to, like she didn't do shit, right? Um, so she said, uh, um, can you come and visit me? So I said, well, theoretically, I can get on a plane and she said, well, I'll send you a ticket. I said, you don't have to do that. I can, I can handle a ticket. So we made a plan and a couple of weeks later, I got on a plane out of LA and went to, flew to New Orleans and then rented a car, drove to Baton Rouge where she lived. That was at night, checked into a hotel, uh, got up. I knew Baton Rouge because I went to college there. I lived there. So, you know, I didn't have to, I could just, I knew where I was going. And then I went out to see her. And then I spent, after we, you know, initial moment, um, we spent the next, I think we, I spent a week with her there, I think, week or two weeks. And I made between then and the time she passed away, like three years, three years later, I would go to Baton Rouge like every, because I come and go as I please, right? So I, I'd go like every, I don't know, every month I'd go for a few days and then I'd stay like two or three weeks. And um, I, I guess I got that thing called closure, right? Because you hear a healing and a closure. We, we, we um, had conversations about the past. She didn't shy away from it. My mother was a ballsy human being. And she, she, she was the princess daughter of a very wealthy guy in Pittsburgh. You know, my grandfather uh, made a lot of money, came here with nothing, made a lot of money. And so she was the youngest of his three children and his favorite. So, you know, uh, um, but my grandfather was a very dominating thumb on your ass kind of guy, which is one of the reasons why he and my dad didn't get along. Because my dad was kind of an out of the box guy and didn't like any of that shit. So my grandfather didn't like me either because I was so emotionally and spiritually aligned with my father. So my mother, like she didn't, to her credit, she took responsibility for everything. She said, what happened between you and me was all my fault. She said, I never should have let it happen. And I know that now. She said, I wish I knew that then 
but you know, I don't want you to have any illusions. None of this was your fault. And I said, well, you know, I could have been more forgiving. She said, that wasn't your job. That was my job. You're my child. I'm not yours. So, you know, we got through it and it, it was, um, it was cathartic and, and uh, when she passed away, I didn't, I didn't feel like there were any, you know, open ends or unzip zippers there. Wow. So, wow. so, so let me something. something. But that was my choice. You see, okay. let's get back to choice. I could have not gone and then not had that experience that completely enriched my life. Right? I could have not gone. I could have been stubborn. I could have been what I call a uh, 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 malignant individualism when you make horrible decisions just because you can instead of making a good decision uh, that may cause a little discomfort but is ultimately the better decision. So, you know, that's the two sides of that coin. When I said choice, we always have choice. Right. And this is water. my question is, so she was a daddy's girl, but what about her relationship with her mother? Very good. My grand, but to understand that, you have to know my who my grandmother was. My my grandparents uh, were were married out of because of an arranged marriage. Oh. My my grandmother was one of three daughters. You know, Fiddler on the Roof. Mm -hmm. You know, you know the characters in Fiddler on the Roof. Vaguely, I remember them. Okay. My great-grandfather, my maternal great-grandfather was Tevye. He was a dairy farmer who came from Russia, bought some property uh, in a suburb of Pittsburgh called Homestead, and out of that created a giant meatpacking plant, like just, you know, the uh, uh, East Carson meatpacking back. It's not there anymore, but for a long time, it was like one of, and he had a dairy farm and, you know, that was their business, right? So my grandfather's family made a, in Yiddish, there's a word, shidduch, made a shidduch with the Jacobson family that my grandfather would come to the United States, hook up with Rev Jacobson and pick one of his three daughters. So my grandfather came when he was 27 and uh, had very little money, went to the Bronx in New York, got a job through a relative who was there as a house painter, saved up money, and then came to Pittsburgh to a homestead PA and hook up with Rev Jacobson to pick one of his daughters. So he had three daughters. And my grandmother was 14 at the time. And my grandfather was 27. So um, the thing about my grandmother was at 14, she could speak like nine languages and she was a math whiz. So my grandfather being who he is, he wasn't as much looking for a wife as he was looking for a partner who had skills that he didn't have. And it turned out that, that the two of them together, they ran like four stores. They, 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 my grandfather bought property 
on uh, the the outside of where the uh, uh, Jones and Laughlin Steel and U.S. Steel. He bought property on the corners, and on one he put a grocery store, one he had a mercantile store, one he eventually opened a car dealership. But what really put the serious coin in his pocket was uh, during World War II, he owned some apartment houses on the river, on the Monongahela River. So he owned them here, right? And, and um, on one side of him was uh, a U.S. steel plant, and on the other side of him was a U.S. steel plant. Comes World War II, and U.S. steel wants to connect the two plants for, to increase production. And my grandfather's apartments were right in the middle. So the story goes through the family <clears throat> that my grandfather one day went to the U.S. steel plant in Homestead and returned with a suitcase full of money, like a, like a giant suitcase full of money. And, you know, that may be apocryphal, but I do know this because I witnessed it with my own eyes. My grandfather was a guy, if you looked at him, and I told you this is a guy who has like a ton of money. He, he would wear old clothes. He never drove a fancy car. He drove a stick shift like Chevy as far as long as I ever knew him. I had a Hudson for a while when he had a Hudson dealership, but mostly Chevys. And um, the cheapest of everything, I mean, the guy would bring home dented bananas and my grandmother would throw them in his face. You know, it was just, yeah, it was just wild. But he used to take his grandchildren to visit the steel plants. And none of us, even though we heard the stories, the stories didn't jive with the way he looked, right? Because he always looked like a guy who was broke, who just didn't have, was, why was the guy buying like, you know, a second socks and cheap, you know, cheap shit if he had all this money. But then when we'd go to U.S. Steel and he would drive in, it was, morning, Mr. Heidewitz. Morning, Mr. Heidewitz. Good morning. And he would take us all around the plant. Good morning, Mr. Heidewitz. How are you today? You know, and it th there was this kind of like weird disconnect. Like, why is our like bum looking grandfather being treated like a king? Well, because, you know, they gave him a lot of money and a lot of stock. And he would go visit and take his grandchildren on tours. So my mother was his daughter, his favorite daughter, this guy. He's the only one she she's the only one that he ever indulged in anything. Bought her houses, bought her pay for, you know, whatever she wanted, she got. And the other two children, you know, fuck them. So wow, wow. Talk about Talk dysfunctional. dysfunctional. Yeah, seriously, of course. <laughs> wow. My mother was his favorite, and my mother was uh her mother's favorite. Wow. Then what did the other two siblings well, do? Well, my, my, the oldest was a girl, a woman, my Aunt Gertie, who was just a toxic piece of shit. She was, she was like my mother only on steroids because she was the first one, right? So she was my grandfather. She, she didn't, there was nothing. This is a woman that, you know, maybe uh, had, had zero redeeming value, just nothing qualities, like nothing. She was just mean. And, the, the irony of that is she marries a guy, uh, my uncle Zelmer, who's like the nicest, like the nicest, sweetest guy in the world. Okay. 
she was a lunatic, but Zelmer, Uncle Zelmer was a, a nice guy. And then my mother's brother, my Uncle Harold, also a nice guy, but, you know, my grandfather, I don't think, thought much of him. Wow, well, you would think that, you know, men are so prideful when they have a son. I have a son. Middle child. Ah. Uh, yeah, middle child. And if he would have been a firstborn, I would agree with you. But he was a middle child and he was classic middle child. He just wasn't very ambitious, always earned a nice living, you know, was a kind, decent man, good father, uh, a good soul, uh, but very, very middle, right? Very kind of non-confrontational because he grew up with a father who was nothing but confrontational. Well, it's interesting how in different eras and different time periods in, in, of history, the mindsets, the beliefs. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's that's why I try to stay immature because the more immature you are, the more current your your abilities are to to see what what change is happening and to become part of the change and not stuck somewhere in time. That's a horrible feeling. Oh my gosh, you're like reliving the past every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like me. I had a really good career. Like I have no, I've never had a real job. I've raised, had two wives, and three children. I, I, have, I live in a nice house. I have an apartment. I have a house and an apartment. So I, look, I left college in, in, when I, in 1969 at LSU. I dropped out of college. And I, I had three life goals. Number one, I wanted to smoke as much marijuana as possible. As you know, nineteen twenty. What the fuck? Number two, I wanted to. Yeah, in nineteen twenties. <laughs> this was nineteen sixty-seven. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, hold up. Wait a second. <laughs> this is me in nineteen sixty-nine leaving L oh. LSU. Okay. I went to college with David Duke, by the way. Uh, with that, that's a whole other story. Because I used to debate him at, uh, <laughs> by the student union, and and. Um, I said three goals, smoke as much marijuana as possible, sleep with as many different women as possible, and make just enough money to afford the weed and the women. So I look back on my life and, you know, my situation, and I say that I have greatly exceeded my own expectations. <laughs> it's, it's all gravy, you know, I've had this fucking fantasy life. I've had some you know, some problems, you know, the accident and my divorce. But my ex-wife and I are best friends, my mother of my children. We talk all the time. We've, we've been best friends. We've never had any issues. We made, when we got, when we knew our marriage was over for whatever reasons, we made an agreement between each other that no issue between us would be more important than the emotional well-being of our children. And that's how we co-parented until they all, you know, got on their own and grew up, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've had a fantasy life. Even my divorce was kind of like a fantasy for most people because there was no anger. There was no resentment. There was no, we're still very close. And my ex-wife is totally okay. My current wife, rather, is totally okay with that. Wow. That, I, you know, it, it would be nice to... 
think are like, why can't everybody else do that? Well, I know why. I can tell you, I can answer that. Ego. Malignant individualism. People stake positions, right? They, 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 they never think beyond the moment. And the reason they don't think beyond the moment is because, yes, it's part ego, but it's that, that ability to act on it. You know, we can do, we often can do things in life that aren't right, even though we, we, we can do them. Okay. We're allowed to do them. They're not crimes, but they're just asshole moves, right? You know, it's the kind of thing you do where a normal person looks and says, wow, what an asshole, you know? And I choose to not be an asshole. You know, I just, there's no fun in that. It's just, I look for jokes. I write jokes. That's my thing. I like laughing people, not people looking at me going, what the fuck did this guy say? I remember seeing something about Kevin Hart. He mentioned, he goes, why should I put my time and energy being angry? Mm -hmm. It takes more time and energy to be angry than it is to be joyful and happy. I choose He's joy right. and angry. He's right. You know, it's like outside of like health issues or the well-being of my children or my wife, my ex-wife, I don't take anything seriously. I just don't. I mean, when I'm driving, yeah, sure, that's But I don't really, I, I just don't. It's not worth it. I've been lucky. I've been very fucking lucky. And I know it. And I'm humble about it. And I don't take it for granted. But, you know, it is what it is. I'm not going to not be, you know, live the life I have. Well, I, I read this book called The Four Elements. And the first one says, be impeccable with your words. The second one says, don't take anything personal. The third one talks about, do not make any assumptions. And the fourth one is, be your best that you can be in the now. Yes. Yeah. I always, um, having children crystallized uh, that for me. Because the one thing I, I realized about having children is that they're watching you all the time. Uh-huh. You know, they're they're absorbing what you're doing. And I, I, I would always think to myself, I have to act in a manner that my children would that I wouldn't be upset if they replicated. Right? You know, so I just you know, thoughtful, um, not like boringly so, because I am after all me, uh but I just would think, you know, I don't, I don't want them to be assholes, so I'm not going to be an asshole and show them what an asshole looks like. I'll let them figure that out looking at other people, but not me. Right, and it, and it goes to show because I even said this to my second ex-husband because we have two girls together, and I looked at him. I'm like, do you know you're the first male that they have in a relationship, you're the first. What example are you setting for them yeah. for their future relationships with the man? Yeah, you're right. I um, I I was playing a par three golf with a friend of mine who's passed away, a well-known actor, and um, he was with his son, one of his sons, and I was with my oldest son, and. Um, he hit 
his son hits a ball and it kind of shanks or something. And my friend who was kind of explosive says to his son, what the fuck did you do? What the fuck did you do? Why did you hit such a shitbag shot? I showed you how to swing a fucking golf club. Why did you do that? And my son looked at me and just like his eyes popped out of his head. And he knew this guy for years, but he saw him, you know, lose his temper and that's what happened. And he, he leaned over to me and said, wow. And then I leaned back at him and said, see how lucky you are? <laughs> see how lucky you are that I'm me? He said, oh, dad, man, I can't imagine you doing that. I said, no, you're right. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't. So, so I think that a lot of the problems in the world, if we could just stop everything for a second and take everybody who has children, put them through a positive parenting class and reshape their viewpoints on their children and realize that their children are not their possessions. They're just people that they're, you know, that they happen to have had a, Part in creating, like they're not, they, they come with a spirit that's completely independent of who you are. They are yeah. own people immediately. Right. Okay. All you do is make them better or worse versions of that. You can the person, you know, that's 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 what parenting is. You just make them better or worse versions of who they already are as who they're born with. So. I just didn't want to, I didn't want the responsibility of creating shitty people. Well, the, and you know what? And you know what? I have to commend you on that because you looked at it in a different perspective. Yeah. And I look at generational cycles, genera generational patterns. But my father is abusive. Yeah. You know, because it, it, go, it runs in my family. I'm like, hold up a second. When I recognized and you know, started realizing like, this is a generational cycle that keeps repeating itself. I'm like, well, shit, the puck stops with me because I don't want my children going through that shit. No, see, I learned the fundamentals of how I parent from my father, right? Like my dad, you know, would, would just say things. His, his way of like uh, giving me a course correction was uh, don't do that. You know why? Why dad? He said, because schmucks do that. And there are two kinds of people, schmucks and the rest of us. Which would you like to be? He said, I want to be in the rest of us. He said, well, then don't do that. <laughs> That's it. That was it. Wow. But that when you say that some, <clears throat> because, I mean, as the generational cycles and the patterns, and it's their behaviors, it's the personalities, it's the limited beliefs that they keep passing forward to their children. Exactly. You're, you're exactly right. What happens is people who have this kind of nonsense, pass this nonsense on, nonsense on generationally. It's like racism is passed on generationally. Nobody's it's taught. it's taught, whether covertly or overtly, it's taught. Nobody is born a racist. They learn this from the people they live with, okay? Yep. And when, when, like my father was not a racist, and I grew up not being a racist, right? I have, you know, a, a life where I interact with everybody. I don't, I don't look at people in that context. There's no 
I look at it in acknowledgement, like, yeah, this person is Chinese, this person's uh, French, this person's an African, but that's just my eyes telling my brain, you know, some background. It's not, there's no, there are no judgment wheels turning. So yeah, it's yeah. weird, it's all parents. Well, I look at everybody as they're divine spiritual beings, sexual beings inside the human being. Okay. We're all divine beings. We're intelligent. If you want to call it, you know, God, Tao, whatever. Uh, this it, divine source is energy and it turned into matter in different shapes and colors and sizes. Suddenly we're at a party in the 60s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Here, try this little lump of sugar. This will help. <laughs> Take this. But that's how I look at it. And I just got, you know, and the one thing that I can, you know, honestly say is religion has it all wrong. It's not when it comes to we're all connected. Religion we're doesn't. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Religion doesn't exist to get it right. So they don't have it wrong. They have it right for them. But it, it doesn't exist. They portray it as something like you just said, which is why you said what you said. But it doesn't exist for that. It exists for the cash. It exists for the control. It, yeah. ex it, it exists to subjugate women and to, yeah. make, to make women second-class citizens because the men who created this religion uh, are scared that these women are going to take their jobs and, and have bigger balls than they do. So it's these men... Who are afraid you know look i have a i have a a, a piece of a material in my nightclub act my stand-up act where i say to the audience i say you know i've been around a long time and there are only two basic roles in life you're either the organ grinder or you're the monkey right and then i, I look at somebody in the audience and i say organ grinder organ grinder organ grinder nope monkey and and i say but don't feel badly if you ask my wife she'll tell you that i'm the monkey in our relationship she'll tell you that i'm lazy i don't know how to do anything i certainly don't know how to fix anything i just sit around and watch tv you know i don't really do much of anything and why she made a decision to never ever ever ask me to do anything that's how useless i am and then I look at the audience, I take a pause and I look at the audience and I say, and that's exactly what makes me the organ grinder. You know, that's, you know, so. Oh you see what I mean? Right? So we are who we are. And, but, but when it comes to that male toxicity thing, that's the, that's the underpinning of, of religions. I don't, I don't buy it for a second that, any of them, you know, including all of them, except for maybe the Eastern religions, which are, you know, come look at life from a different point of view. But the Western religions, all the big ones, it's just about, take a look at them. They all, all of them have put women in a lower class, right? Yeah. All of them, right? It's, it's, you know, it's all about the P word, right? <laughs> it's all about that and who controls that. And that's what, that's the bullshit of it. That's just, that is, because, you know, 
every the the, the the propounders of these things they'll they try to scam you as if it's something else but they use this this um you know supreme being power is like their secret weapon like like well you can't you know i, I i've heard it in judaism i've heard it in in catholicism and christianity well you can't that do that because god won't like it you know don't piss god off that's the whole thing all the religions don't piss off the god person that's and and who's the who's the representative of the god person some man in a fucking suit right some man with a funny looking hat on i'm the representative of the god person well we i want to talk to the god person get some things straight oh no no there's any time for you right? there's any time so that's that as long as these people keep putting themselves in between you know the people that they're controlling and the controlling power if you always have to go through intermediaries it's the reason why my dad would only buy a car from the owner of the car dealership and not the salesman because you get the best deal from the owner <laughs> and so it's all bullshit it's just i'm i don't like believe in a lot of shit because i've been around and I, hear theories and but i'm more believing that in the the theory of like panspermia you know that we were just seeded because i look around on this planet human beings are the only species that don't appear to be native to this planet right we we if we didn't have a brain we would have been eaten by animals long ago but because we had some kind of brain we figured out on an intellectual level how not to be eaten and how not to be somebody's lunch right but we don't have we can't run for shit i mean my my son's new puppy seven month old puppy could outrun me in two seconds even when i was a young runner that dog will outrun me right we uh, have many predators that could just rip us to shreds, save for our intelligence. So I really believe that this planet was happening and human life was seeded here. Because we just don't, you know, we have no respect for the planet. You know, we don't, we, 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 we're using it rather than preserving it. So I just don't think we're native to this planet. I just, I, I, I would. I agree with you. When I ancient civilization, I don't know if you're familiar with the Sumerian writings that were written on tablets. And it's fascinating what I've been studying and what has been revealed to me. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. This sounds similar to what I read in that Bible. Oh my God, there's copyright claims that and plagiarism here. Like, oh my God, if this person was here today, they would sue that person. Yeah, but you see, but but you see that that's kind of like supports what I what I believe because the fact that all those stories are fundamentally the same means that fundamentally the same person wrote them all. Okay, there's it's it's almost implausible to think that people from different parts of the world developing different religious belief systems would come up with the bones the exact same bones of their story as the other people it's just just not 
it means that it, they got somebody gave them the outline and then they just filled it in with their own you know stuff you know their own bullshit right yeah, because I don't believe Adam and Eve was the first male and female on this planet. I don't, I don't believe they exist. I don't believe Christ ever existed. I believe it was all just press. It was all just stories. And again, to control women, I absolutely believe that's at the root of it. I absolutely believe controlling because men and women are not treated equally in any major religion. Women are always subjugated. They're always lesser than. They are not equal partners. Because that's what it, supposedly the Lord God said. And I'm like, well, I'm going to contradict that because if God loves all his children, that includes women too. Yes, but you see, that's why it doesn't, that, that character doesn't exist. And no one's ever seen anything from that character. It's You only see the middlemen, right? You only see the, the salesmen. You never see the owner. Right. And I, that, I, that to me is why it's bullshit. It's just, you know. It is. But you know what? I want to thank you for okay. joining us today. And thank you for making us laugh. And oh, I didn't even think I was that funny, actually. Today. I thought it was <laughs> serious and funny. I can imagine with the little things that you just came up with today. I can imagine what you're like on stage. And I hope one day I get to see you on stage. Okay. An honor. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. It, I love I love having these kind of conversations. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time out and being here. Okay. And sharing your story. Well, we have I, Steve Joyner to thank for that. Yes, Steve Joyner. And you know what? I wish you the best of success with your you book, oh, your upcoming you. tour dates. If you're coming down to South Florida, you better let me know because I'm getting tickets. Okay. We'll have tickets for you. No worries. Well, there you go. A heartfelt, inspiring, transformational, and some deep conversations with Mark Scheffler. And if you want to see him, if he's going to be... Uh, if you want to find out where he's going to be, all his information is down below. Stay tuned for more exciting and amazing guests and interviews right here on Wake Up With KC. Do you agree that, you know, it's time that we all wake up and take responsibility even for our ancestors that did not know any better been waiting patiently to have this kind of conversation 